so we have Sarah here with us, Sarah Pollock Jackson, uh, who, who has visited many times in the past. Uh, mm -hmm. So I thought, one, maybe you could just give us a bit of background and what's drawn you to us at Brie, what was the connection there, and then mm -hmm. maybe also like what, what has kind of made you interested in hope and necessity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Well, really nice to be with you all this evening. Thank you for yeah for having us for these few days. It's been really nice to to be here at the manor, sort of for a few days around the lecture as well. Um, yeah, nice to see people I know and people I don't. Um, yeah, so um, I've been coming back and forth to Labrie a little bit for a while. So my husband Phil here was a, a student and a helper here like 15 years ago. Um, so I kind of discovered Labrie through through him and we've been back and forth. Um, and yeah, very inspired by Labrie. We now oversee a community house of 10 in London. That's very different to Labrie because it's obviously a much smaller scale and people are doing work and life. But uh, inspired very much by some of the rhythms and vision for Libri, so we feel great love and kinship. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not mistaken, that, that has a guest, a guest room that you often open up as, as part of that, is that right? It does, so feel free to chat to us if you... Uh, I'm you planning to take advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll find Over a place to work out, so I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so um, that's part of life. And then I suppose in my work, I mean, my background um, has been in, in philosophy. So I kind of have studied philosophy all the way through from undergrad through to doctorate. And um, someone asked me, I think it was Charlotte asked me at the dinner table, like, why did you study philosophy originally? And I, I kind of don't really know the answer to that question um, as a punchline sort of short answer, but I guess a sort of magnetization towards exploring the nature of reality, like being drawn to that being a good thing and always finding that to be kind of congruent and overlapping with Christian faith and spirituality. Um, yeah, and my main, I mean, I've kind of dabbled in lots of different, um, I guess, philosophical, theological fields, uh, but my main work has been in phenomenology, the study of um, uh, human experience, basically. And so I suppose very broadly, I'm interested in what is human experience and like, what can we learn from it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which is a very big question. But um, a lot of my work has been in thinking about the experience of interpersonal interactions, but includes all kinds of, I suppose, emotions and experiences and hope, I suppose, is one of one such human experience that is worth exploring what what is it and what can it teach us i suppose thank you well, we're very much looking forward to tonight uh, and just to say this is our last uh, lecture of the term uh, we'll probably be picking up again i'm guessing in in mid to late probably later september our term starts i think september 15 or 16 or something like that um, so if you're, if you're on Zoom or those folks here, we won't, uh, we won't be having any Friday night uh, gatherings from now until probably late, later in September. We'll send out an email, and if you would like to have that email to know what we're uh, lecturing on, you can sign up. You can email us at office.englishdebris.org, and we'll sign you up or visit the website, and you can sign up there. Um, 
So you're you're uh, ending us off for the turn. So thank you very much. <coughs> I'll leave it to you. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, Joel, and yeah, thank you again, everyone, for having us. Um, it's good to be here. So yeah, as I say, we're thinking about hope uh, this evening, um, and maybe before we start, maybe I'd invite you to just, you know, as I'm talking, to be thinking about what you're bringing to this topic of hope like what um how might you how would you initially define hope what do you think hope feels like um what is your relationship with hope um i think we all will all be bringing something so it's maybe worth just trying to tune in and reflect on like what what are you bringing and probably it's many things and probably it's com it's complex um, but I would invite you to be kind of reflecting on that. Um, touching, I think, touching the topic of hope. I mean, in many ways, we're primarily doing something of, a, of an intellectual exploration here. But it's always, when we're talking about hope, it's very much um, a personal and existential exploration as well. Because hope is actually such a tender um, thing. You know, it's... Uh, about why life is worth living, really. So um, I sort of uh, hope to hold it in that way. Um, so uh, hold hold that as you as as you listen. So um, Hebrews six verse nine calls Christian hope an anchor of the soul. So we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This image of an anchor of the soul. And this promise and this image ties in with St. Paul's famous passage to the Corinthian church, where he says, for now we see only uh, a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. So hope is one of these big three uh, theological virtues. Um, and what Paul says in this passage is that hope, like faith and like love, remains. It remains when other things crack and fade and are destroyed and decay and are lost. Um, and that we're invited to remain, to abide in hope. So again, this image of an anchor keeping us steady, meaning that when we're blown around in the storms of life, uh, we're not destroyed by them. We're tethered to something firm. And as we keep hope, hope keeps us. So that's almost like a little meditation to begin. I think my exploration of hope this evening takes a somewhat sideways on approach. Um, and basically what I'm doing in this lecture is a comparative look at two different possible ways of thinking about hope. And I was initially motivated um, in this by wanting to analyze uh, the account of hope put forward by um, a popular thinker and writer called Rebecca Solnit. I don't know if you, those who, who knows her work. She's, um, she's a secular thinker, 
Um, she's got a large popular audience. She tends to write essays. She writes, she writes very beautifully. She writes some really, um, some really well-written essays kind of reflecting on a whole bunch of topics. And among her writing, she's written a, she wrote a book called Hope in the Dark. Um, and she's also written about this account of hope in places like The Guardian and kind of other, other kind of well-known popular places. Um, I think she's quite influential, at least in sub, some subcultures, and so kind of worth engaging with. Um, so I want to look at her account of hope. And then I want to um, contrast it with a different approach to hope. Um, and this second account of hope is the one I take to be resonant with and ultimately find a source and a kind of find a source in a coherence with uh, theism generally and Christianity specifically. Um, and this is an account that I call hope as a saturated phenomenon, which is, um, is a reference to Christian philosopher Jean-Luc Marion. So I'll, I'll outline both of those accounts and then kind of compare, contrast them and kind of evaluate them a bit. And in terms of my approach here, um, there's a sense in which I want to try and meet the secular thinker where they are to some extent. Um, and obviously when we're thinking about our grounds for hope, uh, the question of the existence and the nature of God looms large. You know, it's immediately a theological question as much as it is a philosophical question. So typically, you know, we might try to first try and establish the truth or falsity of certain of, of theism, of the existence of God, or certain doctrinal claims, and then uh, kind of evaluate on that basis. But I'm, I'm sort of flipping that methodology a little bit here. So my, my primary focus is on an analysis of the, if you like, the structure of these two types of hope, respectively, um, which then I think gives us a way into thinking about um, analysing their content, thinking about their content theologically as well. Um, so... I'll sort of outline a bunch of my terminology um, and then do this kind of comparison, as I say. And ultimately, you know, I've called this lecture Hope and Necessity. Um, I'm interested in how these two accounts um, differ in their claims about the relationship between hope and necessity, and actually two types of necessity. So that's, that's where I'm tracking. So... There's many different types of hope. There's different possible ways of analysing them. I'm wanting to follow um, uh, Joseph J. Godfrey. He's a, uh, he's a contemporary philosopher. Uh, he has this terminology of fundamental hope, which is a kind of dispositional hope, which is distinguished from specific hopes or hopes, hopes that. So let me think about this a little bit more. So... Specific hopes um, have a definite object that are perceived by the hoper as of value, where it's uncertain that this object will come to pass. Okay, so I hope that the post will come before I have to go to work, or I hope it won't rain tomorrow. Um, so in those cases, the object of the hope is clear, it's rain or it's post, um, and the nature of the uncertainty is clear. Um, you know, these are events that are currently possible, they're future events, they're possible rather than actual. And we could say that they are, in terms of the possibility of these events, um, they are, you know, rain, 
post, they're kind of empirically possible, they're metaphysically possible, and they're also kind of importantly for hope, they are epistemically possible. We sort of have this, we know that they're possible, uh, but we don't know that they're certain. We have this sort of uh, relationship with these objects where we don't know if they're going to come to pass or not. And we'd call this, we'd, this is epistemic uncertainty. That's sort of the, the relationship we have with these things. And in these cases that, um, you know, the object is unknown because it's not yet actual. So the sort of standard account of hope and this kind of specific hope would be that, that hope is based on uncertainty in belief together with a representation of the object as desirable. So, I mean, that's far from a complete <coughs> account, but that kind of gives you a basic sketch of what we often mean when we're talking about specific hopes that we're hoping for. So, um, a philosophical question to ask is, on what grounds are specific hopes warranted? So, almost every writer on hope notes that um, hope has to be, to be meaningful, hope has to be distinguished from mere optimism. Um, hope has to be something that is maintained when facing reality rather than simply just like not looking at what is real. I think we'd probably agree this is something that's important when getting to grips with what's substantial about hope. It's not just wish fulfillment. It's not just assuming things are going to get better without any kind of epistemic justification for that. So. One possible thought here, if we're thinking about how a, what, um, how a hope's warranted, would be to notice that specific hopes present not just as possibilities, but as probabilities. So the different things that we might hope for might have higher or lower probabilities or likelihoods. So we might think, I mean, one sort of uh, uh, way of thinking about this might be that um, when we hope, we calculate whether the desired object is worth hoping for roughly by calculating its probability. And so, you know, a justifiable hope is something that's more probable than not. If it's less probable, we shouldn't hope for it. So this sort of, um, this would be what we might call a kind of probabilistic account of hope. Um, so this kind of hope isn't able to, you know, isn't, is never certain about what's, what it's hoping for, but it could hope for what's probable or likely. Um, and there's, you know, this kind of, this account would also have to be kind of thinking about the, the value of the object and so calculating the risk involved in pursuing it. Thinking, again, putting this into what Godfrey calls a kind of calculative approach. There's this sort of calculation going on. And the basic idea would be that, among other variables, there's this roughly linear relationship between the likelihood of the object and the strength uh, or likelihood of our hoping for it. The philosopher Aristotle identifies such a version of hope uh, in those who hope because of their experience. So sort of based on, um, if you like, inference as to what they know from the past that kind of calculating approach can sort of calibrate, you know, what we hope for, what we don't. And I guess the strength of this position is that it has an, it has an account, if you like, as to why hope is different to optimism, just sort of mere optimism. It's, it can distinguish between them. Um, I think there's a question, though, 
as to whether this probabilistic ap approach to hope rings true. Uh, we might think that it doesn't really get something right about what it's like to hope, that sort of phenomenology of hope. Um, and we might also think that it, uh, we, uh, our hopes shouldn't necessarily function in this way. If we're thinking about what is the substance of hope, that, that this sort of idea that we're just doing a kind of calculation um, isn't, isn't what we're doing and sort of isn't what we should be doing. Um, Aristotle criticizes this way of ordering our hopes uh, when he says, he says that those who hope this way, uh, quote, do not hold their ground against what is really fearful. So again, this idea that a hope that can be reduced to a calculation, even if it's a kind of complex calculation, gets something wrong about hope. And maybe if we think about those terrible moments when hope is what's needed and the calculation fails, we might think this is, this is why there's, this, there's something kind of uh, unstable about this, um, this understanding of, of, of hope. So I guess the question for us is, is there an alternative and if there is, it's also going to need to be able to distinguish between hope and mere optimism. And I'm interested here in how a second order disposition to hope might play a role in understanding the legitimacy of specific hopes. Um, and so help us think about alternatives to this sort of simple probabilistic model. And this is um, uh, this sort of disposition to hope, this dispositional hope, is what Godfrey calls a fundamental hope. That's what I'm looking at here. So, oh dear. Don't panic. Okay. <laughs> um, so, fundamental hope. So, um, Godfrey defines fundamental hope as, so, quote, a tone or basic disposition which, with which one faces the future. It has at its core the refusal to judge all is lost or I am lost. And again, so he says, uh, the best preliminary characterization of fundamental hope is an openness of spirit with respect to the future. This means that one does not deny evidence or miscalculate it. One faces up to the evidence, but openness also means a sense of the limits of evidence. It knows the difference between this cause is lost and all is lost. The tonality here to be called hope is thus distinguishable from optimism and presumption on the one hand and pessimism and, dis and despair on the other. So fundamental hope, as I'm, I understand it, is this kind of second order disposition or tonality, as he puts it, within which one's specific hopes are held. Fundamental hope plays a role in calibrating whether the frustration or the kind of non-resolution of specific hopes will lead to despair or not. And it also plays a role, therefore, in establishing whether certain uh, specific hopes continue to be worth pursuing, even if the likelihood of their being fulfilled initially presents as slim, even if the sort of the calculus would fail. So I guess the question is, in what um, epistemically legitimate sense could a hopeful disposition um, calibrate our response to um, 
the fulfillment or lack thereof of specific hopes. Godfrey suggests that fundamental hope is, in his words, objectless or in a loose sense of the word cosmic. He also refers to it as a cosmic hope or an umbrella hope. And he says, if we were to say that this hope has an object, it would be everything. So it's, it's this big, again, it's this big picture sort of um, tonality with which one is approaching reality, if you like. Um, so fundamental hope is not random, but it's this, this disposition, disposition grounded in a conviction about how the world holds together, how, what reality is, is like, if you like. So that's quite, um, that's quite vague at the minute, but um, in, I'm going to come on to look at these two types of hope, and I think they both kind of qualify as forms of fundamental hope, as, as Godfrey's kind of um, articulating this here. So I hope that will help illuminate um, kind of what I have in mind here. So just as specific hopes can be false hopes, you know, they could just be mere optimism if they don't fa face reality appropriately. The same is true for this kind of fundamental hope, this disposition. You know, what makes this kind of disposition warranted? What keeps it from a vague cosmic optimism? Um, and again, this is what I take these two different accounts of hope to be trying to speak to. So let me turn to these two um, accounts of hope. So starting with uh, Rebecca Solnit's account of hope in her book, uh, Hope in the Dark. Um, she's offering in this book um, an account of hope, particularly for political activists, um, particularly those campaigning on, on environmental issues. Um, she notices this kind of dispositional cynicism in activist subcultures. And her aim is to argue that dispositional hope is warranted. So she is, she's making, she, you know, she's not an academic philosopher, but she's making really a case for what hope is and why it matters. And the focus of Solnit's argument is not that specific hopes are worth pursuing because they're likely to pass, to, to come to pass. Um, but um, she focuses on reasons for pursuing uh, you know, any goals that are valuable with dispositional hope, regardless of how likely they are to come about. So she's sort of trying to get away from that naive probabilistic account. And so her position is um, kind of captured in this passage, I think. So she says, hope is not about what we expect. It's an embrace of the essential unknowability of the world, of the breaks with the present and the surprises, or perhaps studying the record more carefully leads us to expect miracles, which she's using in a non-technical sense. Not when and where to expect them, but to expect to be astonished and to expect that we don't know. And this is grounds to act. So the nub of her claim um, is that when it comes to working for social change, which is sort of what her focus is, the probabilities of our specific hopes coming to pass are always hidden from us. This is what she's claiming. So she's claiming that um, they're hidden from us because the way things hang together, this sort of like what reality is like, is always significantly more complex and non-linear than we're capable of calculating. So, you know, no human probabilistic hope calculus could offer reliable output on whether the objects of our specific hopes come to pass or not. 
So her claim isn't just that the objects of our hopes are uncertain, that's a condition of all hope, but that the probabilities that we attach to these hopes are also fundamentally uncertain. That's kind of uh, what's key to her argument. So it's for that reason, on, she takes it, that a straightforwardly probabilistic model of hope can be rejected. And the basis of her argument is that history evidences breakthroughs in social change that would have seemed highly unlikely to those living through those changes at the time. And she thinks this testimony of change lends support to the idea that um, attempts to write off specific hopes as unlikely and not therefore not worth pursuing are misguided. Um, she opens her text with a quote from Virginia Woolf written during the First World War, um, who says this, the future is dark, which on the whole is the best thing the future can be. Um, and it's a quote that she uses again and again. Um, and she elaborates on this by saying, dark, not, um, dark as in inscrutable, not as in terrible. Um, so again, this, this fundamental unknowability she takes to be a kind of condition of... Um, of the kind of the possibility of a dispositional hope. Um, and against this, she advocates the view that from the perspective of history, um, past futures, if you like, have constantly thrown out the unexpected. And as part of this, um, some specific hu uh, human hopes and actions have played crucial roles in positive human changes in ways that the people involved couldn't have known would be the case at the time. So she says, who could have imagined at the time a world in which the Soviet Union had vanished and the internet had arrived? And her positive assertion is that cause and effect assumes history marches forward, but history is not an army. It's, it's a crab scuttling sideways, a drip of soft water wearing away stone, an earthquake breaking centuries of tension. So... In a nutshell, one can never say with confidence that hopeful action, one's own or others, is not making a difference in the grand scheme of things, so these efforts can never be written off. She says nobody can know the full consequences of their actions, and history is full of small acts that change the world in surprising ways. And so she concludes, it's always too soon to calculate effect. So that's kind of, again, against the kind of calculative approach. It's always too soon to calculate effect. And she says, this is another quote from her, we're asked to trust the basic eccentricity of the world, its sense of humour and its resilience. So this orientation she has towards reality is fundamentally um, ad hoc, if you like, is what's grounding her fundamental hope. Um, she thinks without this, we, uh, we fall into presumption or cynicism. And to kind of return more explicitly to the relationship between fundamental hope and specific hopes, Sol Solnit claims that fundamental hope is justified because, so while some and maybe many of the things that we specifically hope for will not come to pass, some will, um, including hopes that individually or collectively we thought were improbable. And because we don't know which hopes will come to pass and which won't, then all are worth pursuing. So, so her account, so this kind of, this structure to her account, if you like, is 
is why her account of hope can be distinguished from mere, mere optimism. So it faces reality by, by expecting that many specific hopes will not be fulfilled, but offers a reason as to why uh, this isn't grounds to give up hope completely. Um, so I'll come back to some more detailed analysis of her account in a little bit. But for now, I just want to observe that um, while Solnit rejects a probabilistic account of hope at the level of specific hopes, so that's that what we might call the naive probabilistic account, there's a sense in which a probabilistic approach to hope is operating at the level of her fundamental hope. I think it seems to me Solnit's fundamental hope is premised on the fact that at a macroscopic scale, reality operates in this uh, mysterious, non-linear, sometimes random way. And given that that's the case, it is likely that some specific hopes will come to pass and some won't. So there, there's a that kind of inference from previous experience, you know, we've seen unexpected things in the past, um, we'll, we will therefore see them in the future, it means that um, uh, we can wager, if you like, at that higher level, there's still something kind of probabilistic uh, going on. And she says this herself, she says, hope can be based on the evidence, on the track record of what might be possible and she says, I've been trying to shift what the track record will be. So that's, that's maybe interesting just in terms of thinking about what's going on in her account. So I come back to that. Let me come to this second account of hope that I am contrasting this with. I think the formatting has gone a bit funny there, but never mind. So this second account of hope that I'm interested in is not grounded on what is possible or even probable, but what is actual. And it's grounded in what is actual, but what exceeds our full grasp. Um, this is a form of hope that isn't oriented towards the world as this sort of void or space to sort of cast our hopes into, but is the world of ordinary perception uh, all around us that is saturated and overflowing with the reality and presence of something that exceeds it or transcends it, glimpsed in the imminent and the ordinary. So um, I'm calling this account hope as a saturated phenomenon. And um, this terminology of the saturated phenomenon comes from the French Christian philosopher Jean-Luc Marion. Um, he... Um, he talks about this idea of, um, or he, he uses this term to evoke or describe uh, the quality of experience, if you like, of um, what it is to encounter something um, uh, that, that transcends what's, what is there in literal perception. So he's not talking about hope specifically. So he's talking about what it is to kind of encounter something that feels in experience so saturated with meaning that part of the experience is this sense that the meaning exceeds the experience itself. So um, the, the example he often 
uses is of, um, of an icon. So uh, when we come to, or the idea is when we come to an, an icon in devotion, um, there's what we literally see, the literal form and color, the, the image and so on. But what happens is it can become a, a doorway to something infinite. So it's, it is finite, it's, it's, a, it's an image, and it, but it, it can open up, it can become saturated with meaning. Uh, so that's not just sort of, you know, um, quite meaningful, but kind of exceeds the container that it's held in, um, that idea. And he contrasts this with uh, treating an image like an idol, where the meaning stops with what we already know, if you like. So that difference between an idol and an icon. And then he wants to sort of broaden this out to uh, our experience of the world in all kinds of different dimensions um, uh, in the world world, um, of ordinary perception. And we find a similar idea in... um, uh, the Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, who talked in a very similar way, talks about the experience of um, encountering something infinite in the face of another person. That, you know, we encounter other people who are part of material reality. They have this kind of uh, finitude, but we, we face them in this sort of, we sort of face them properly as people. Um, uh, there's this um, sense of seeing through into the infinite, this um, kind of experience of the, if you like, the transcendent in the imminent. So Levinas says, the face of the other is present in its refusal to be contained. It can't be comprehended or encompassed. Um, and, uh, you know, Levinas is inspired by Plato's idea of the transcendent good, as well as the idea of infinity that's found in Descartes' third meditation. I think, as a side note, I think Descartes often gets such a bad rap in the history of philosophy, but his his kind of um, discovery of God in the meditations on first philosophy, this hitting up against something that is exceeds the container that it's contained in, is Levinas recognizes there's something uh, significant there. Um, And for Levinas, this is, of course, the God of Uh, of the Torah. So from a Christian perspective, the fact that we, um, that Christians believe in a transcendent and infinite God who is nevertheless present in our imminent and finite experience, I think is key to understanding the structure and meaning of a distinctively Christian hope. We are um, finite uh, containers of the infinite, if you like. Uh, If you try to imagine that as a picture, which is kind of impossible, you know, the finite cannot contain the infinite fully. And so this this idea of saturation is um, characterized by um, excess rather than lack. So rather than there being not, you know, the uncertainty that's involved is not because there's not enough meaning, it's because there's too much. It, it, it exceeds the kind of capacity of the container to contain it. Um, and this would be true, again, from a Christian perspective, this would be true even into eternity. 
You know, even in the new creation, we remain finite and God remains infinite. And that's why if we're thinking back to St. Paul, thinking of that hope remains. Um, uh, even as we enjoy the presence of God face to face, rather than as in a mirror dimly, even then God will still exceed us. There will still be an overflow of God's presence uh, that we will not fully comprehend. So that sense of there'll always be um, there'll always be a need to hope. There'll always be more, if you like. I think um, the work of uh, of Rowan Williams on the creation of art, I think, also offers quite an illuminating way into trying to understand this. This is uh, sort of something to try and tune into, as it were. Um, and he thinks about this kind of concrete example of artistic uh, creativity. Uh, Rowan Williams, uh, of course, a theologian and the, f- the former Archbishop of Canterbury. So in his book, uh, Grace and Necessity, Williams draws on the work of Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain, who, in Williams' words, uh, quote, identified the labour of art as something rooted in the sense of an unfinishedness in ordinary perception, a recognition that the objects of perception were not exhausted by what could be said about them in descriptive, rational and pragmatic terms. So I think what we have here is an articulation of a way of engaging with a specific hope. You know, the hope of bringing about a work of art that's not yet created, um, which might be kind of comparable to bringing about social change that Solnit's thinking about. And we can, yeah, we can think about other specific hopes by analogy as well. But his claim is that, um, well, this specific hope is rooted in this sense of the unfinishedness in ordinary perception. That there's more going on um, sort of in reality that is perceived, that is kind of calling the artist to pursue and participate in. William says that in artistic labour, we're put in, quote, some kind of relation with an aspect of reality otherwise unknown. And he kind of talks a lot about, again, evoking this kind of language of the overflow of of, uh, something that uh, draws us to it. Again, this sort of experience of something excessive, something more than in our ordinary perception. And so I think what's, um, what's interesting here in terms of connecting this to this discussion about hope as a saturated phenomenon um, is that um, he's, he's saying that artistic work or labor is hopes to realize what is epistemically possible, you know, creating a particular work of art, you know, it's a possibility only as it responds to something excessive, overflowing, saturated, perceived in what is already actual. It's responding to something that's already there in reality. So in his words, the work of art is not kind of plucked out of the void by the sheer will of the artist, but is uh, is necessarily oriented towards being. And he says, again, this is a quote, he says, art is therefore bound to show us what is in some sense real. 
So the specific hope um, is kind of responsive to that which already uh, exceeds it. And again, um, he says, I oh know that's not it. It's this next one, sorry. He says, um, art seeks to reshape the data of the world so as to make their fundamental structure and relation visible. Thus, the artist does set out to change the world, but if we can manage the paradox to change it into itself. Yeah, something that's been glimpsed as real, some sort of depth of reality has been glimpsed that the artist is sort of trying to respond to, to make the artwork more uh, like this kind of uh, excess of meaning that's been glimpsed. So this paradox is that I'm arguing part of the structure of this second version of fundamental hope. So to kind of uh, reiterate that, hopefully for clarity, that specific hopes, specific hopes aim at what is not yet the case. Um, you know, again, if we're talking about an artwork, they claim to create a piece of work that doesn't yet exist, to aim at what is metaphysically possible, but not yet actual. At the same time, uh, however, insofar as hope motivates agency to labor towards bringing about the fulfillment of these specific hopes, it's, this hope is aimed at what is already the case in what is saturated or unfinished in our understanding. So it's, again, it's that glimpse of what is actual that founds this fundamental hope. Or perhaps to frame this another way, this kind of fundamental hope is therefore founded on the idea that surface appearances do not tell us the whole story about how things hang together. It's founded on a kind of bearing witness to a depth of reality that exceeds the totality of our individual ordinary ways of engaging, of engaging uh, uh, reality. So it invites participation in what some thinkers have called uh, the sacramental imagination, which allows us to recognize transcendence in imminence. So again, there's a conviction in this position that there's an inherent epistemic uncertainty in our viewpoint on the world, but not because it's random, but because it's infinite and it therefore exceeds our capacity to grasp it fully. So fundamental hope as a saturated phenomenon does not subscribe to the probabilistic model at either the level of uh, specific hopes or the level of fundamental hope. Uh, the, funda the, sorry, the fundamental hope that the cosmos is sort of excessive in its reality and goodness and that all the objects and events of ordinary perception are capable of being brought into a greater conformity to this reality. You know, fundamental hope is, is founded on... Um, uh, the sense that reality really is structured this way. Fundamental hope in this sense is therefore sort of uh, seeking to track reality, if you like, in a non-probabilistic way, albeit a way that it can never fully kind of know fully. It's still kind of tracking um, uh, what, is, what is glimpsed there. Or again, and put another way, rather than responding to what's possible or probable, this kind of hope is responding to something um, epistemically uncertain but, but actual.
So this form of hope is not a form of mere optimism. It faces reality, uh, first by not ignoring the reasons that make the fulfillment of hope unknown or even improbable in one's existing framework or perception. Uh, what keeps us in hope is the recognition that although all the possibilities that we could imagine might be put to death, the possibility of a, a resurrection, definitionally, in terms not yet possible to comprehend, is still given. Um, this is kind of given from the outside, if you like, as a kind of promise. Um, so this formulation of um, hope as a saturated phenomenon is not intended as a proof of the existence of God. Nevertheless, I think we can see that this model of hope um, is patterned in a specifically Christian hope, marked by death and resurrection and directed towards the person of Jesus. So let me, let's just, I'm just gonna skip that in Lear, but let's just think about that kind of Christological dimension a um, little bit more. So I think we see this in the incarnation of Christ, God coming to us in human form, in the death and resurrection of Christ, um, and in the promise that God through Christ is reconciling all things to himself. <clears throat> so briefly digging into those things, in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus himself, the kind of material of ordinary perception, his ordinary human body, there's this idea of the gateway to a to the divine reality that exceeds all, that exceeds full comprehension, sorry. This pattern of the transcendent in the imminent, the, the, inf uh, the infinite in the finite, uh, like a skyscraper within a matchbox, as my previous vicar used to say. <clears throat> and in, G in Jesus' death and resurrection, we see the pattern in which our comprehension is disrupted and overturned by the overflow of the presence of God, if you like. Death signifies the limit of our understanding, and on its own terms, death would be the end of hope. But the pattern of death and resurrection of Jesus is a pattern of there always being this, this more than, this and yet, through God in Christ. Um, and this pattern is our pattern uh, for if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And similarly, this sort of eschatological vision um, that we get in scripture, this picture of the culmination of the whole of the universe with the person of Jesus at the center. Um, everything that looked dead and broken beyond repair, everything beyond our comprehension as to how it could ever be uh, redeemed, will be so in Christ. So if we go back to that, that Hebrews 6 image, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This idea that Christ sets the pattern and the substance of our hope. And I think we should think of the person of Christ for us as a saturated phenomenon, you know, uh, uh, what is given outstrips what we can conceive. The theologian N.T. Wright speaks of this in his, um, in his book, Surprised by Hope. Uh, here he looks at patterns of what he calls the continuous and discontinuous that structure hope in Christian theology and in the Christian imagination. 
Um, and by continuous and discontinuous, he's referring to the fact that we glimpse this hope in the here and now. You know, again, we, we glimpse it in the imminent, the ordinary. It's continuous with our present experience. Um, but it's grounded in and heading towards something that exceeds our full grasp. Um, I think it's, you know, another way of saying Christian hope is uh, given its shape by the actuality of a God who exceeds our, our full grasp. And Wright looks at sort of different images used by the New Testament, like sort of marriage and uh, the seeds falling to the ground that all kind of have this pattern of the continuous and the discontinuous. He says, what's happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ resonates out in ways we can't fully see or understand into the vast recesses of the universe. So, so to recap, both of these accounts of fundamental hope base their warrant on a sense of how reality is structured, um, taking this structure to provide grounds for this basic existential orientation that absolute despair is never the final word. For Solnit, the structure is one of eccentricity, and for someone like Williams, it's one of excess. Um, and I think there's lots of, you know, I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts about other ways that we might kind of compare these two accounts. But I'm interested just briefly as we sort of uh, coming to the last part to think about two, um, two different um, axes that, along which I might we might compare these. So the, the first of these is to make the comparison that um, these two different types of fundamental hope are making claims about the nature of freedom in relation to hope. So in ethics, we find the question of how it can be the case that we're responsive to the obligations of value, and yet at the same time, we have to choose to respond to those values freely rather than as a sort of form of coercion. And in the same way, we might ask the question of, you know, what's the relationship between hope and freedom? Um, not, this isn't the question of whether we're free to act on what we hope for, but how is our freedom involved in the formation of hopes as our own? So we might think of hope as kind of casting out into the void of the not yet, you know, creating the objects of our hope from nothing, if you like, this sort of product of the will of the hoper. Um, and I think Solnit's hope, I think it's fair to say, implies something of this structure. So for her, the will seems to play an important role in this visioning process. Um, she says, quote, the freedom for each to participate in inventing the world, the power to make one's life and to make the world. I think it seems for her that the content of our hopes are ours to birth, uh, ours to kind of project into the dark, as she puts it. So it's this hope in the dark. And she talks about um, uh, well, she says this, hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen and in, and in that spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. So I think that spaciousness, again, like the dark, it's this absence of direction from the world itself. It's a kind of vacuum opening into which the individual or collective will has the power to bring about something new. So that pure possibility. 
Hope as a saturated phenomenon, on the other hand, conceives hope's freedom in a slightly different way, I think. Um, because the sacramental imagination takes itself to respond to something actual in reality, um, this is not an action that is characterized by a kind of radically free will so understood. On the contrary, this is a form of epistemic uncertainty that chooses to be obedient, if you like, to what it glimpses in the overflow of ordinary things. So again, I think Williams is helpful here when he's thinking about the process of, of art making. So he says, you have to find what you must obey artistically. And finding um, that which exists in relation to more than your will and purpose, finding the depth of an alternative embodiment in the scene landscape, the depth of gratuitous capacity in the imagined character, so character in a novel, for example, some, something you're trying to, to bring about to birth, um, when what you want to imagine will not come, and so on. The artist looks for the necessity in the thing being made, sort of looking for what's real. So Williams understands the hope of artistic labor as this kind of obedience or responsiveness to what we recognize in this sort of more than in our ordinary perception. I don't think we should read this as the idea that there's no freedom in hope. Rather, this account offers us a way of understanding the nature of hope's freedom, if you like. It's this freedom as response. It's sort of a non-arbitrary um, uh, constraint that, that means freedom really is, is free. And on this point, I would argue that William's account paints a more realistic <clears throat> picture of hope's freedom. Um, I think he does. Um, uh, I think what we have here is a portrait of hope that is is liberated from what is arbitrary. Um, that's language used by Levinas as well. Um, uh, the point is that the freedom in hope is, is freedom to hope for that which is worthy of hope. Hope is necessitated by what is transcendently real and good. And then so finally, there was this point about freedom, and then there's this also this, this sort of second... So these are two types of necessity, basically. That was a, one kind of necessity. This is a second kind of necessity. Um, hope happens to us at points of uncertainty, as we've said. And uncertainty can involve these different, what we'd call, um, modal claims. You know, there's different things going on in terms of possibility, probability, actuality. And as we've seen... Epistemic possibility might follow what is metaphysically possible, but not yet actual. That's what Solnit's hope is looking at. Or what is actual, but not fully known. And that's this sort of hope as a saturated phenomenon. So for Solnit, this metaphysical possibility is at two levels, the level of specific hope and fundamental hope. And as I've sort of tried to lay out, her fundamental hope is warranted because the possibility that all is not lost is probable. So her fundamental hope will therefore endure so long as history continues to conform to this pattern of triumphs as well as defeats. Um, 
so there is this contingency, I would say, to her account. So it's, it's, not, it's not so vulnerable that, you know, at one, one failure is sort of enough to make everything crumble. She's got a more expansive account. She's kind of looking big picture at the sort of ebbs and flows of history. But um, uh, so she sort of doesn't fall foul of Aristotle's sort of worry at this narrow point. But, um, uh, but I think that on her account, um, if, we ever do, if we ever do find ourselves in a position where um, uh, history does not continue to sort of uh, have joys as well as failures, then, then her kind of, the sort of the grounds of her hope uh, uh, will uh, will uh, will fall away if you like. Now that may not be a criticism, and the response might be that it's quite right that fundamental hope should be responsive to the contingencies of history. Um, but um, but there is then this vulnerability, if you like. There is this contingency to her account in in her account. Hope is a saturated phenomenon, on the other hand, tethered to something kind of outside of this ebb and flow of contingent probability. Um, so to stay within the example of art, I guess it's, it's uncertain for all kinds of reasons whether, you know, I'll make the actual thing I'm working on, the book or the sculpture, whatever, will come, up, will come about. Um, but um, the thought is we can legitimately hope for the creation of this thing or the reconciliation of this relationship or whatever it is, is because this kind of sacramental imagination shows us that these situations contain within themselves more than that they are, if you like. And so in the case of every seeming defeat, there lurks this promise of the possibility of, um, uh, of a resurrection. And that, that is, um, if you like, the, the necessity um, of, uh, well, uh, on a theistic worldview, the sort of metaphysical rock-solid um, necessity of, of God means that um, the sort of the, the, there isn't this same vulnerability to the, the ebb and flow of the contingencies of history. There might be a different kind of vulnerability, um, I think, and maybe I'll, I'll end with this thought that, you know, what is required um, if we think of hope as a saturated phenomenon is that um, we take up the right kind of attentiveness to reality, that we sort of put ourselves, we are attending to it as, as though it could be an icon rather than an idol. Um, and so that might be a vulnerability of a different kind, kind of tied to our our willingness to embrace the sacramental imagination or not. And that might be interesting in the discussion to think about what, you know, what that means. Anyway, to conclude, in a nutshell, I would say Solnit divorces hope and necessity, whereas uh, this sort of second alternative version of hope um, brings them together. And I would say that this second account of hope as a saturated phenomenon makes better sense of the kind of uh, experience of the necessitation of fundamental hope um, uh, in our experience and it provides I guess this true anchor to the soul uh, in that language of 
of, of Hebrews, uh, hope that remained. So let me leave it there for questions um, and discussion. Thank you for listening. Um, we will take a few minutes for people to chat and process, and we'll come back together for questions. I think maybe, so as you know, chat to each other, um, think about um, maybe what struck you, what do you, um, you know, what do you think? Um, but maybe you also want to go back to those initial thoughts that you had, that you, start, that you thought about what, do, what did you bring? Um, what was the account of hope that you thought you were bringing? And how do these, maybe these two different accounts, where would you locate yourself? That kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, have a chat with your neighbour and then we'll come back together. questions at a time, but I get the great joy of often asking the, the first question, which is really just uh, was chatting with Sarah just now, of, of wondering if, if you could, I, 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 towards the end I think I started to grasp your concept of necessity a little bit more, of like maybe that the excess that has to come out, there's more depth and reality than we see, and I just wondered if you, if you if I'm tracking that correctly, or if you could maybe elaborate a bit more to make sure we understand kind of that mm. dimension of the hope of, of what you mean by necessity. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, um, because I think there's a lot, there's a lot of ideas in a way that kind of got packed into quite a short space of time there. And there's um, one of the things I was interested in in comparing these accounts is that I think there's kind of maybe two types of necessity that it's interesting to kind of compare both of these accounts uh, on, if you like. So the first, the first one I think is, is, is this idea that you're sort of starting to articulate, this idea that, um, uh, that I, I find it helpful to, 
uh, with, with someone like William's idea of need, having to obey <laughs> what is glimpsed, as in there's something um, magnetic, there's something necessitating about the goodness and, and depth of reality that, that, is, um, br that brings about a, re a response of a certain kind. It's like necessitating. And that's not a sort of coercion. It is a like, oh, this is what reality is like. Like, this is, this is what's good. This is, I have to create or I have to uh, reconcile because there's something true about it. And I sort of have to... Um, this is what freedom is, actually. This is what it is to track with it. And is that a response, like a necessity of a response then to mm -hmm. reality? Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of that core idea. There's also this the second type is um, this sort of idea of what is metaphysically necessary as a kind of category, as a kind of philosophical category, rather than just so we've got what's possible. And then there's what's actual, and then there's what's necessary. And so if God exists, God is metaphysically necessary, like God uh, must be. So there's also that sense that, so this is a sort of, a sort of that first type of being necessitated responsively, but then also this sort of idea of what is this anchor to the soul? There's also something that's not just kind of contingent on the ebbs and flows of history, but also sort of necessary in the, the deep structure of things so I don't know if that that helps kind of speak a little bit to those ideas yeah. of necessity yeah that's very helpful thank you that's very helpful thank you um yeah, so I've, I've I got my bit in and I get to open up to grab so we'll the, the Charlotte and Philip why don't we gather your two questions and we'll, we'll let Charlotte, Charlotte first um, I was going to ask the idea of hope is a saturated phenomenon often we talked about kind of the Christ figure and the idea of it as like like with a theistic response is theism like a precursor for this understanding of hope being saturated phenomenon like from a secular perspective is there like would you say there's another way to see that kind of mm. deeper necessary meaning or is that reliant on mm. a theistic mm. yeah it's a good question because um, in some ways it's um it's wanting to start with human experience and say, like, we have, um, this is something that we can identify. There is this sort of more than in, uh, in certain experiences. And before we make any metaphysical assumptions about whether God exists or not, like, let's just, let's just notice that that, that happens <laughs> in human experience. Like, this is part of the kind of the quality um, uh, of, of, of certain human experiences. And then the second question is, um, well, what does that then tell us about reality? And um, maybe some people would try to argue for some kind of depth dimension that is not sort of a kind of classical theism. But I think it, well, I think it becomes difficult to, th to think metaphysically about what that is without something transcendent, minimally. Um, so that, and the hope in kind of thinking that way is you're sort of starting with, um, rather than assuming this kind of layer of metaphysical assumptions about God, um, looking at the kind of the human experience of hope and kind of then um, 
sort of working your way up, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Sorry, you were going to collect questions, and I just, I just like jump straight in. What is an example or two of these experiences where you think of as more, like, more than, you know, as the things that people talk about as those moments where you glimpse that reality is just more than what we see? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, often, this is a way of talking quite typically about certain forms of religious experience of sort of maybe this is sort of, um, which might be kind of beholding tree and then sort of this real sense of like um, the the kind of um, uh, the, the kind of creative power behind it. I mean, as I say, Levinas talks about just the kind of interactions with human with other human beings that. Um, we can we can either do that in a way that's not noticing the glory of the other, or we can really be um, paying attention in a way that is then responsive. And there's there is this sort of um, uh, and he he then grounds his ethics in this because he's like, well, we can't not respond to if you like the dignity or the glory of another of another person. Um, so so both. I think the the mundane to the the more you know kind of classic um, re religious experience as well. Okay. Um, I'd be interested in your your views on the the, the sense um, of pointing beyond in hope. When, when mm. Miriam and I were talking just now, mm. um, and Miriam mentioned. Um, comments about Williams and art and so on. And uh, a friend of ours died recently, she was an artist, mm. and Miriam said uh, it would be the kind of thing that would be good to talk to Janice about in any case. Mm. Um, but we can't yet. Um, and it's this sense of, of, of pointing beyond, like the, the icon is not, not, not simply something which contains more than it appears to. Um, but points beyond itself to something else. The yeah. Eucharist, do you have Emmanuel Fawkes work? Mm. Eucharist points mm. beyond mm -hmm. to something. The, 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 um, uh, what is given exceeds, uh, outstrips, I think is your mm. word, um, uh, the, the being's appearance. That, um, would you like to comment on, 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 on this pointing beyondness and what might be, who the giver might be, the given, the givenness? Hmm. outstripping does that imply a, a, a pointing beyond to the giver hmm. yeah it's, it's a really good question and I think um, well I one of the reasons I wanted to think about the we don't just have this sort of generic sense of transcendence and imminence, um, but we see, um, we kind of see this, yeah, we see, we kind of see this Christological pattern, if you like, that this is um, somehow what God is like in the way that he gives to his creation, that there is a, um, uh, taking on of taking on a flesh, the sort of the con there is a 
this giving of the container that kind of contains within it more than it contains. Um, and so, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I wouldn't want to, I don't think there's a sort of tidy inferential kind of argument to say, you know, therefore, um, therefore this kind of God. But I think, I think, um, if you like, doing this kind of phenomenological analysis leads us to this sense of um, the transcendent in the imminent. And then, and then Christianity has this, when you then look at Christianity, you're like, oh, this is the, this is the pattern that we see. And so I think I would think of it more as sort of real resonance um, rather than a sort of uh, kind of knockdown argument to say sort of therefore the Judeo-Christian God, but really like, oh, this is, this is congruent, this makes sense. Um, and when we look at the person of Jesus and think about uh, him in this way, this makes, this makes sense. It gives us more than simply a sense of transcendence, it gives us a sense of, of um, rightness of what, um, of, 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 uh, what, what kind of uh, world we struggling for the words, how, how this world might be dependent, the nature of the dependence of this mm. world. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that idea of the over the overflowing. I mean, I guess the language of gift. It could be that that kind of idea as well. The gratuity. I think Marion uses that word. So, what is reality like? Well, it's generous. It's it's um, sort of breaking forth, and it's, the more than is not just a sort of not a sort of just bare epistemic thing. It is. It is. It is generous. It is. It has that kind of quality. Yeah, I think so. Abundant. Abundant. Yeah. Abundant. Is that? Is that somewhat one of the things I was thinking? Is is this is soulness or even our the way we're talking about this? Do you, is it somewhat contingent on living in a fairly abundant Western context, where like like where we see abundance and we experience abundance all the time? Do you think it's, it would be, I mean, that's a genuine question because I've mm. never lived in a different, uh, I mean, uh, long term, I've, I've visited, but I, I don't know, I mean, maybe that's to others as well, is that is seeing abundance, you know, seeing that, yeah, just because we live in a, in a kind of an excessive use of the world, in a mm. place, or mm. in a really great moment in time in one sense uh, of reality, would soulness in particular, would someone ever come up with that if they lived in a different period of history? I don't know. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we live in an abundance of a certain type. Yeah. It's not an abundance, it's a massive reduction at other levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, the abundance of the transcendent that we hope for is a very full abundance mm -hmm. where not the reductionist thing that we, which is reduced to a certain type of, ma of material excess, um, some of which we can't handle or enjoy. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, the icon is more, I think, than something that points to, it's actually, that's what the word means, a window through which you can see and you can experience to some degree 
the abundances on the other side. Mm -hmm. That's the idea of the icon in orthodox uh, thinking. Um, I, I think art does, good art does that. It takes you a little bit to taste the other side. Mm. Um, where you see the fullness of abundance because it's the, it's the infinity of God. So it's both personal uh, and relational, um, which many other cultures in the world know far more than we do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, I also don't know the answer, as it were, um, and whether one of the I was also I skipped over. There's um, a philosopher called. Uh, what's his name? Leah, I forgot his first name, Richard Leah maybe, who he looks at, um, uh, he looks at an endangered tribe who sort of, n and the, the, the chief of this tribe n can see, he knows that their way of life is going to collapse and um, yet um, has this hope that all is not lost and he kind of looks at this and looks at how it's what he calls radical hope, which I think is kind of, is quite similar to this idea that, um, which maybe ties in with this idea that actually if you, if you kind of can't, you kind of don't have the luxury of a second order, first order or second order probabilistic hope, then, um, um, then actually the source of your hope has got to be, um, uh, it can't be tethered to the, in that way. So it's, it's going to have to be, if it's going to, to, uh, be grounding and substantially grounding it's got to be I think he talks about um, in their case this sort of trust the trust of the excessive goodness um, and reality and reality of the way things are so like even if everything you know sort of the litmus test of these things is um, for those who really are sort of facing losing mm -hmm. everything can can there still be a substantial hope um, rather than a mere optimism or a sort of placating um, Thing. So I think it's probably a good thought experiment for that is account is is this kind of account of hope substantial or not? So yeah, it's a good it's good. Yeah, yeah um, the word hope. I looked it up this, this afternoon <laughs> in the Oxford Encyclopedia of, of um, philosophy. It doesn't have a, anything. Necessity has about two and a half three pages. Yeah, all sorts of uh, references. Um, I'm, I'm just philosophically exploring that word hope. Um, if I, I mean, could we substitute belief? If you said I believe what it says in John three sixteen, it, it doesn't use the word. Um, John doesn't use the word hope. He uses the word belief, and also know. Um, I'm thinking Job, isn't it? I know my redeemer liveth. Um, which I would say Plato would class that knowledge, episteme, I think rather than Gnostic knowledge, is a higher level than, than say, an opinion or a, or a belief. Um, I'm just where, wondering where hope lies with that. Um, I know that the sum of the angles of a triangle are the same as two right angles, I mean, you know, a flat plane. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, because that's, I would say, almost a priori knowledge if you believe in if you set, set the Euclidean axiom. So I think that's just the nature of who <coughs> we are as homo sapiens. Um, I'm just wondering how much this transcendental 
metaphysical belief is the sort of a priori belief we have to have rather than, as you say, you don't want to put much faith in, I'm using another <laughs> theological word, um, belief in um, statistics or probability, although I think probability is quite an important thing, you know, mm. the, the probability is it's going to rain in Old Trafford and we may not beat the Aussies <laughs> to tomorrow, hopefully, but hopefully <laughs> we might beat them on, on Sunday if it doesn't yeah. rain too much, you know. Mm. So I think if you could explore belief, knowledge and where hope stands in, in, in that and how necessity in a logical form fits that, because that's what I was struggling with in your talk, where, where necessity really came in in the sense of it, I'd say it's necessary that the sum of um, the angles of a triangle are, are necessarily two right angles. And, you know, because I don't think you really looked at the necessity as much as I was, mm -hmm. was going to say hope, mm -hmm. <laughs> would, would hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, it's complicated, but mm. I think that, mm. that would help me sort of yeah. philosophically. There's a few things there. Um, so I think and maybe something to just pick up on what you said that maybe I should say is that um, uh, I don't think, I think a lot of, of Solnit's account is probably, um, there's a lot in there that's quite, that's quite wise at one level, like this idea of a second order probabilistic, um, that, that being sort of part of the furniture of how we assess certain things is probably uh, is, is not necessarily incompatible with this other hope it's more thinking about as a worldview I think there's as a worldview these two things don't um, uh, are not compatible but it doesn't mean that we don't it doesn't mean we don't think probabilistically it doesn't mean it's not a useful tool and even at sort of that second level it doesn't mean it can't be used so just sort of in terms of, I think I probably didn't say that, and I think that's helpful to say. Um, um, I mean, you've raised the, sort of the question of what is what is knowledge, what is belief, <laughs> um, is 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 big. I mean, um, I I haven't really considered, I haven't really thought a, a huge amount in this for this piece of work as to how. Um, how I'm interacting with those those terms. I'm, I suppose, I'm thinking. I've been thinking about uh, the component of hope that is this epistemic uncertainty. So, in some sense, that is involving knowledge. So, in in both cases, both types of hope involve. A form of epistemic uncertainty, as I said. So in, they're not. Um, uh, there's some. Um, the knowledge, in each case, is not um, complete. There's something like there's not this sort of full knowledge. And in one case, it's because, if you like, there's a kind of lack. There's something that's we know is possible, but we don't know if it will be actualized. There's this gap between the possible and the actual. And in the other case, the uncertainty is because of excess, like what it is that we're beholding exceeds the capacity for full knowledge. Um, so in one sense, I guess, no, so knowledge is playing a sort of constitutive 
component in hope. I mean, I think probably what, um, I mean, there's all kinds of different definitions of knowledge, of course, but I think I'm thinking of hope as also to, is has that epistemic dimension, but it also has this existential dimension, like, what does this mean? Does it mean all is lost or not? So I think um, that's a very, that's sort of very loose. There's lots more you could say, but I think that that would be the kind of, some of the, the key ways that I think hope and knowledge are kind of interacting in this account. I, you look like you've got a lot more questions, but <laughs> I'll let Joel kind of work the room. <laughs> Yeah, really good question. Pardon? Well, I'm sure it is. That's a whole. That's a lifetime's work, isn't it? Um, but it's a really good question, and I, um, I'm sort of interested in what other people think as well, because I'm sure there's people who um, have a lot of interesting things to to say on this topic. I mean, I suppose part of this. I mean, if we're thinking about hope, as if we think of hope as a saturated phenomenon, and so part of what um, part of why hope might be a theological virtue is because we can um, we can attend to reality such that we are more or less open to its depths, and therefore that sort of that grounding for our hope uh, could be more uh, or less like we could. Um, we could be more or less open to what is really there, if you like. Um, and so prayer seems like the, one of the obvious spiritual disciplines for um, opening ourselves up to reality. And so um, uh, making ourselves um, open to the, the grounds of hope uh, as a saturated phenomenon. Um, which again, I guess I suppose is, are we going to try to look at um, the icon as an icon or, or as an idol that just stops there? I mean, that's to do with, are we coming at it with a posture of openness and devotion or with a sense of a kind of a closed sense of like, oh, we already know what's there. Um, so that, that might be part of it. Response to prayer, or is that a new new question? It's, I think, a new but related in a way. Okay. That, well, there were, we have a couple in the queue that. Is that's, that's okay. That's okay. Sorry. That just the, is there any other <coughs> responses on the prayer? Uh, I'm just gonna add. I think I think both actually uh, ideas of hope, at least in the words used. I think I'm probably saying the same thing you're saying in, in my small language. That. I appreciate the, the emphasis on, on unknown, on things, as you're saying, that we're, we're an openness to the unknown, that, that, that part of what it means is to hope is that there's, like you said, this epistemic uh, gap, this, this that we don't actually know, and 
I, I know for myself that sometimes prayer sometimes is just uh, yeah I have to ask that question is how much openness is there and when I'm talking to God to a surprise to an unforeseen thing how much is it just going back to what I think I already need um, and I think that this is the, what you said here I think is helpful I like the idea of being tuned that there's, there's always more uh, that the, the, it will come out somewhere else mm -hmm. that, that what I'm wanting so we can bring what we want um, but do we have space for the unknown mm -hmm. uh, that we might not expect in the way we're praying mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and do we pray to be surprised ever mm -hmm. you know uh, in that, in that I, I found the language at least of both kind of helpful reminder Malcolm, I'm, I'm new to this. So if I ask or say something naive, I hope you'll forgive me. Um, I did struggle with the way these philosophers presented the argument, obviously using technical terms. Um, and I was thinking it from, from a, a Christian perspective and what the New Testament says about hope using the Greek word elpis. So our hope, the Christian hope, is actually certain, that's what it says. It's a certain hope. So and I think, and that led me to thinking, well, the philosophers you talked about seem to have as their first point that, you know, the uncertainty of it. And I agree that most people speak in terms of, of hope in an uncertain way. There is an uncertainty about it. So, and I, I like to think of examples. So if you talk to someone and you say, where well, are you going on a holiday this year? They say, well, I'm hoping to go to New York again. And that presumably expresses the fact that they haven't booked it yet, otherwise they'd say, I'm going to book it. <clears throat> so for some reason there is some uncertainty in the plans. But for the Christian that's not true, because hope is expressed and grounded in a person, that's Christ, Christ is our hope. Um, and it's grounded in what, he, what he's done, which is the anchor illustration of, of Hebrews. But it's also grounded in faith, so it has to be based either on certainty, the certainty of a fact, or I would say the certainty of a faith. And the Apostle Paul, I think, brings that to bear, because he talks in Romans 4, I think, without checking it, um, about the, the story of Abraham and Isaac, and offering, Abraham being told to offer up Isaac. Um, and Paul makes the point that he had hope that he would receive his son again. So had God not intervened, and he had obeyed God to the point of slaying his own son, mm -hmm. he had hope that he would receive mm -hmm. his son again. Mm -hmm. uh, and Paul links that to the hope of the resurrection. <coughs> and the reason he does that was because he believed God's word that said that Isaac was his son and heir. So he, he thought, well, God couldn't have told me that and wouldn't have promised that Isaac was my heir and then told me to kill him unless he was prepared to give, me, give him back to me again. So, so you see the connection between faith. Faith is the, is the grounding of it. And if you like, uh, I like to see hope as, as the future aspect of faith, which it certainly is in terms of the resurrection, because that's what's been promised to us. Uh, and it's as sure as God's word is sure. That's, that's the, the reason it's put to us. But also think about some of the practical applications. You know, the... Um, again, in, in Abraham's case, his hope was transformative. It led to action. 
Um, and I think that's probably what distinguishes hope from um, wishful thinking. Um, I've heard people say, you know, I'm hoping that God will give me a house, you know, thinking that a house will drop into their lap. Now that's wishful thinking. Um, and, you know, you have to gently point out to people that, yes, God has given me a house, but I've got a mortgage to pay for it. So, you know, it, it requires action. And when I've, I've met, for example, um, kids who've come out of public school, they have an absolute certainty, which is a hope for the future, but absolute certainty that they're, they're going to succeed in life on the basis of what school they went to, what their parents have, uh, have, have done, what university they're going to be going to. Conversely, you talk to the sort of people I grew up around, which was sort of like poor working class, and a lot of these sorts of people have no hope at all because there's no expectation of change. And because it doesn't transform their lives, they've, they've got nothing to look forward to because nothing changes in their lives. All they can hope for, the best they can hope for, is to survive. So I'm putting all these into the mix, and I, I was just wondering if I could form this into, into a question rather than just a statement, um, is do you think that that is the, the, the sort of lines of thinking that you would develop this, uh, this subject? Would, is it, would, would that be useful, do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. So there's, I think there's, I mean, there's a few different threads there. So I think, I mean, I think on the first point about having a certain hope, um, I mean, in some ways it depend, depends what what we mean by these terms. So I suppose um, I would say that that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about this second kind of necessity. So um, there's a sense in which um, if God is God and has been revealed to us in Christ and this pattern of hope exists, then it's, so that is what makes it an anchor to the skull. Like it's a sure and steadfast, like it's, it is the case in any possible world with any possible future, regardless of what happens or anything. I don't know what's going to happen in my individual life or sort of collectively in our society, but the the sort of like metaphysical stake in the ground of like uh, uh, that God is and who God is revealed in Christ is kind of there. Um, that doesn't mean that we fully comprehend it. So there's that uncertainty in that sense, like the the we don't. We haven't nailed it in our, as it were. So there is there is that dimension of mystery, um, and I think that is part of what is what makes something hope. Um, is that it's um, that there's that uncertainty in that sense. In a sense, the future is unknown to me. So. So there's that. And I think the example of Abraham is a really good example of hope as a saturated phenomenon, like hope in this sense of the radical hope of like, it absolutely would not have made any sense to kill Isaac. So the only reason that one could act on the basis is this, is this hope of uh, uh, this this, this meaning, if you like, that exceeds what is there in front of you, that, you know, has come from, you know, he's had this word, this sort of word from the Lord. Um, so that sort of exceeds the, the, like, otherwise, this absolutely makes no sense. So uh, I hope in that sense. 
Um, and then I also agree with you about sort of hope leading to action. And I suppose part of, you know, using um, Solnit's talking about activism, Williams is talking about art, sort of thinking of those as a, of examples of, of action. Um, you know, why do we bother pursuing certain things? Um, and so, again, hope, yeah, hope is, and both of them are trying to, well, both of these accounts are trying to give justification for why should we bother yeah. acting? Um, and I've made the case that I think there's a kind of m more substance to this sort of hope as a saturated it's phenomenon. It's, it's more of an expectation than, and less of an uncertainty. It might be an objective in working uh, what what is? Well, in, in the, the hope in that sense, that um, it's it's more certain in the sense that it's an expectation. You expect something to happen, either because of your your circumstances or your abilities, and it's something therefore you've worked for. Well, I'm. I think that's more of a probabilistic account of hope. Right. So I think I I I suppose I'm making the case that that is. I mean, maybe there are probabilistic hopes. So maybe at what, you know, as I said, at one level, we often do all kinds of things. We do certain things that we think are more probable. Like at some levels, that makes sense. But when we're sort of zooming out to sort of um, our fundamental disposition towards reality, I think that's where I'm arguing there's sort of more, more going on. So my question was, uh, the way I understood you define hope is it's basically a way of seeing the world, right? So the world is sort of charged with hope, mm. and it's, we have to learn to see that. Mm. Now, I was going to ask, do you have sort of practical recommendation or practices as to become hope more hopeful in that sense? Like prayer would be one, mm. like prayer as, as learning to see. Mm. Are there other spiritual practices mm. becoming more hopeful? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, I wonder that... Um, well, so sticking with some of the examples in here, I wonder that um, that creativity is one of them. So sort of thinking about what is it to, um, which again, is not necessarily about sort of trying to whip that up out of nothing. But if one is sort of a, attending to um, the world in order to, to think about how to um, collaborate with it to kind of create something that is true and good and beautiful, then in a way you're having to put yourself in that receptive posture maybe. So, so maybe um, creativity as a broad category actually would be a spiritual discipline that is kind of cultivating this muscle of seeing the excessive, the kind of what's given and abundant in the world. Um, and... Um, and then maybe, I mean, maybe activism could be um, a practice as well. You know, what is worth fighting for? What is worth, um, even where it sort of looks on the balance of probabilities, like will this affect change? Uh, is it the sort of the, the practice of still saying like, no, this is... Um, this ultimately is not congruent with what is most true about the world that that's also perhaps um a spiritual practice discipline um 
yeah, I'm sure there's many others. I mean, I suppose like we, I suppose one thinks about the, you know, all the classic spiritual disciplines. I mean, worship, um, fasting, solitude. I mean, all of these things I think could be part of. I mean, they, uh, they, they are about often trying to uh, make space to attend to the real, which is ultimately God. Um, so, great question. Just one of the things that's been coming to my mind as you've been speaking is the the different the difference that different epistemological approaches make on this issue of discerning reality. That if reality is truly abundant and generous uh, and vastly bigger than the bits that we perceive, that how you get to know that. Um, becomes important mm. and that the scientific method that we have been all taught is the only way to know anything for sure um, can only tell you about the created order mm -hmm. that's the thing it studies mm -hmm. it can't tell you anything about something beyond it and the idea of, of um, growing in knowledge which we find all the way through the New Testament is a growing in knowledge of uh, the larger reality mm. the reality beyond the immediate and the seen and so whatever epistemology we have mm. ought to be something that we grow into mm. um, we're growing into a knowledge of um, a little bit like you do when you learn how to read mm -hmm. When you learn how to read, you're not really concentrating on the stuff you're reading so much as on the letters and the syllables and the words and the sentences. But as you've learned how to read, you can go on to bigger things. So learning, in a sense, as, as, as building blocks into mm -hmm. the bigger reality of who God is mm -hmm. um, seems to me to be much better or much more ne necessary than... than simple scientific model. Yeah. I don't know if that made any sense at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, which I suppose then is sort of this question of formation and what are we being formed by and not just what, not just what are we thinking about and attending to, but, but how and how are we being shaped by, because we are always being shaped by different cultural forces and subcultures and you know how, how you know if we I suppose back to again using the idol and the icon like if we we go to it thinking we know what it's all about already we won't we, sort of, we won't um, sort of be open to its depth so how do we pay attention to what's forming us so that we um, are sort of growing in that curiosity and openness and receptivity rather than that that kind of closeness of which a kind of scientism can be one form and there are various other forms of dogmatism which close us down rather than um, keep us receptive to reality I suppose yeah. and just one, one of the things I've, I've found living here at Lavrie is great blessings you get surrounded by all sorts of very interesting, passionate people like 
poets and artists and, and people who love nature and, and uh, who literature, who are always bringing out mm. more than I mm. have known mm. to see. Mm. You know, mm. people who, who really love a particular thing and you mm. just think, well, that's just a that's just a stove. And then they say, no, 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 like mm. this is a design mm. and it does this and it brings community and it's beautiful mm. and mm. it can be ugly and they can do, you know, they... Mm. And, you, and the, just the, the joy of being around people like that, mm. that kind of open up the depth of mm. reality. Mm. And yeah. unpack because they're attuned to it. They pay attention. Yeah. And the joy of yeah. being surrounded by people who are, who have, are noticed different things. Yeah. It's such a, yeah, it makes you much more hopeful, excited about what is possible. Yeah. You know, entering into something. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, that's a. Yeah, I don't know if that's a spiritual practice to surround ourselves mm. by... Uh, yeah, living community. Yeah, yeah, but it is. You know, philosophers that, mm. that keep asking the next question to mm. understand the thing and unpack it. And that, you're just astounded all the time by the depth of things. You can mm. have keep having conversations about mm. something that, for my pragmatic utilitarian mind, is just a chair for sitting on. It's That's something I've noticed here has been a real blessing for mm. me. Mm. Sorry, I shouldn't have given myself the last word there, but I'm sort of guessing. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll finish up. Thank you yeah. very much.